1: Today, we can pick up our cell phone or turn on the TV and find out what the weather forecast will be a week from now. It is because of a vast global network of people and technology that weather has gone from something we merely observe to something we can actually predict. Today, we are joined by Andrew Bloom, the author of The Weather Machine. In this book, Bloom takes a minute to step back and marvel at this amazing technological achievement. Andrew, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. This this is an first of all, let me start by saying I I finished the book this weekend. Andrew was gracious enough to send me a copy It's an amazing book. If you are a weather geek and you want to understand how weather forecasting is done from the basic observations all the way through the modeling to the dissemination, you have to read this book. And so I've been wanting to talk to you, and I'm glad we're getting this opportunity. Tell us a little bit about yourself and, and some of the other things that you've written before we get to the weather machine. Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to.
0: Uh, so um, I'm a, I'm a journalist. Um, you know that's kind of the way I approach things. I'm not a meteorologist, uh, and I spent about ten years writing mostly about architecture and about cities, so about buildings. And uh, slowly, about ten years ago, that kind of transitioned into writing more about infrastructure, about about big systems. Um, I was working for Wired magazine at the time, and um, that was kind of where they they sort of pushed me to go. And I, you know I love love doing that. And wrote a first book called Tubes: A Journey to the Center of the Internet. That was really about the physical infrastructure of the internet. And so it was a similar thing to the Weather Machine, where I kind of went around and tried to understand how the pieces fit together. And we can talk about this. But the internet's infrastructure is pretty different from the infrastructure of the weather. Um, but I kind of, you know, it sort of really wet my appetite for thinking about, you know, how do you how do you describe these these really complex systems that we touch every day, but that are kind of hidden behind. The simplicity and the accessibility of our apps and our smartphones, and uh, I may not have known entirely what I was getting into when I decided that uh, that I wanted to pull back the curtain on how on how the weather forecast worked. Um, but it really um, it really was about a sort of continuation of you know about you know twenty years of writing about about buildings, about physical things, about technology, about infrastructure, and really trying to understand how that applied to the weather, which of course is both a, a science and a technology. It kind of combines elements of both.
1: Yeah, no, it, it's and it's. I can tell your journalistic uh, chops are all over the book, but you also have a very good sort of meteorological perspective as well. Like clearly, you've you've been around this topic, and your research was excellent. So, I, from the meteorologist hat I, wear, I I commend you because you know, as I was reading the book, I mean, much of the material I was familiar with, but the way you weaved it into a story, I think. Any person, irrespective of background, can grasp the material. Let me give you a little of additional background. Uh, Andrew is, uh, has written for Wired, Newsweek, The Wall Street Journal, New Yorker, New York Times, Vanity Fair. Business Week, Slate, in Popular Science. Uh, he received a degree in literature from Amherst College and a human geography degree from the University of Toronto. Uh, and as you heard him mention, his book, Tubes, a, a Journey to the Center of the Internet in 2012, and 2019 brings us The Weather Machine, A Journey Inside the Forecast. You know, this was an interesting book because as a meteorologist, as an atmospheric sciences professor... People ask me all the time how a weather forecast is made, or alternatively, when I give a talk in a public lecture space, I'll ask people, well, how's your weather forecast made? And I often find most people don't know. They'll say things like, oh, it moves from west to east, or you're guessing, or you're using satellites. All of those things perhaps are are a part of the process. But I want to dig a little bit deeper into, I mean, you you said you mentioned it, why you undertook this particular, I mean, what what made you just want to dive in? Because you did extensive research and travel quite a bit for this book.
0: Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. I, I listen to the to the podcast regularly, and I know you always start with the kind of why do you become a meteorologist. And I always think to myself, wait a second, you know, I'm not I'm not a meteorologist. You know, I, I didn't have this. You know, it's not it's not it's not weather is everything, but um, but in some ways, it's you know, it's always been a part of of what I've of what I've written about because I've written you know about about places always. That's kind of the way that I look at these topics. Uh, you know, buildings through the lens of places, the internet through the lens of places, and of course, anywhere you go, there's always the weather. And I kind of, you know sort of knew that to describe the weather in words uh, as a non-scientist, um, not in technical language, but in sort of uh, you know in in what what it feels like and how it changes our experience was a real challenge. Uh, and it was um it was kind of my my white whale. you know, I really I wanted to figure out how to how to get there. Um, the real thing that changed my perspective uh, was recognizing, the way in which the weather models had become ascendant, uh, and when I kind of started to say, "Okay, well, what what would it mean to look at the infrastructure of the weather?" I really thought I was going to be writing more about weather stations and about these far off places. And of course, you know that that is that is part of what I did, but it it wasn't until I, I the idea really became more formed that I realized the the you know the 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 biggest challenge of this and the the real focus, the kind of heart of the book, was going to be understanding how the weather models worked. And uh, it was exactly kind of my favorite kind of topic, you know, you know, very complex, uh, but completely ubiquitous, you know, something we, we, we just we touch every single day. And also something that only a, a relatively small number of people in the world, you know, sort of really know what's going on inside. And for me into telling these stories to, to know that there's a kind of small pool of experts um, that are doing something that is affects everybody. That's the kind of formula that I was really excited by uh and sure enough you know when i started talking to weather models you know that weather modelers um you know it's, uh, that that was really you know they, they 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 were incredibly interesting and and it was um it was a real challenge to sort of get up to speed to understand how they fit together and what the issues they're facing are and of course how they improve and have kept improving to 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 give us the, the forecast we have today
1: yeah absolutely and 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 it's a backdrop to something i mentioned before uh I think of weather forecasting because weather modeling, which we're going to dive uh, deeply into in the podcast today, uh, we are solving a set of very complex equations that describe a fluid moving around in the atmosphere, if you will, the atmosphere is a fluid on a rotating body at multiple levels of the atmosphere. Uh, It's a daunting challenge. I often describe it as, uh, imagine if you were to place a beach ball in the Mississippi River up in St. Paul, Minnesota, Uh, because that river is a fluid, we could theoretically predict where that beach ball would be three days from now because we know something about the river. We know how deep it is, how fast it is, how cold, et cetera. We also know the boundary conditions, So we can make a prediction. That's essentially what a weather model is trying to do, but it's so much more. So let's start at the beginning. Tell us what you learned about what weather models are and their inherent strengths and weaknesses.
0: Hmm, that's a good question. <laughs> okay. Um, I think for me, the so I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about how I approach this. I went to the Wharf users workshop um, and uh, in Boulder um, more years ago than I have to care to admit. I think it was it was two, 2000, uh, 2014 For and for I
1: the listeners, there. Wharf is the weather research and forecasting model. It's one of our regional or mesoscale type models that we use. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, and I did that because I knew there'd be you know a hundred plus people in the room who I could pester with questions about how the models worked and, and what they are. And the thing that really changed how I approached the entire project and sort of my thinking about weather models was to recognize that they are themselves ongoing simulations, that it's not about a sort of, you know, computer program that you put in the present and the future comes out, but rather that they are simulated atmosphere of the earth that is corrected slightly with the latest observations with each run of the model, this this process that we call data simulation and i and that really to sort of begin to to see that it wasn't about a kind of meat grinder that it wasn't about putting in the present and putting in as many observations as you can possibly get and having as big a supercomputer as possible to you know to increase the resolution and you know get you know get as as, as much as you know accuracy as possible that way it, to see that it wasn't just that that it was really about you know having as much of a, of a simulation as close as possible to the real atmosphere as you possibly could And that was the key, sort of that that mimicking of the Earth's atmosphere was the key to getting better forecasts rather than some sort of mysterious uh, a- algorithm that just changed the present into the future.
1: Right, and and one of the things, that, and you and I both know this well because we follow the weather community uh, on social media and, uh, and more broadly, there's often this debate that we hear about the European model versus the American GFS model. It, I mean, people take sides and it can get pretty testy. If you've watched uh, social media or Twitter. Twitter, it's like, man, it's like people are BFS with the models. I mean, they'll defend it tooth and nail. <laughs> yep. uh, whereas I, I kind of look at both models as um, tools that we all use. Of course, the European model statistically is better. And you talk about the nuanced technical ways that we determine that. What's your whole take after having written the book, The Weather Machine, on this whole Euro versus American model stuff?
0: Well, it's interesting. You know, I, you know, I have a different need than, than meteorologists. Uh, I'm not just interested in the model that, that puts out the, the, the best simulation of the atmosphere of the future, the best forecast. Um, I also had to tell a story about it. And one of the things that I saw really clearly was that the folks at the European Center were very good at telling their own story. Um, and I think that also that ability to tell your own story and the sort of clarity of their organizational structure – I do think has a lot to do with the success of the model itself, um, but for me, I knew that if I were writing about the the euro, as we call it in the US, uh, I could I could go to Reading and I could spend you know spend the week there, and I could hear uh, from the research folks and from the operations folks uh, and from the the, the supercomputer folks. I could, they were all in the building, they were all having lunch together, you know, quite remarkably, you know, exchanging ideas every single day you know, so we talk about this sort of research to operations challenge, you know, that happens uh, at the European center. Um, you know, they, they seem to only take coffee breaks, <laughs> you know, they were constantly there, uh, you, know, you know, hanging out. But I think that makes a difference. Um, so for me, you know, I, you know, I recognize that, you know, that statistically, the models are quite similar. And I recognize that, of course, there are some high profile, you know, wins and losses on both sides. But I think what the European model has to teach us um, is this, the organizational structure, uh, and the, the, the sort of iterative process of improvement that not only keeps it the best model, but keeps it uh, getting better faster. because that's really what we're talking about. You know the models are all improving, but we're really talking about who's able to consistently improve uh, over time the you know by the, by the greatest increments uh, and at the greatest at the greatest speed. And it seems as if the European center is actually, um, you know, we can get into this more, but it seems as if they they are increasing their rate of improvement. But for me to tell the story of it, it was all about the sort of clarity of the organization, which I do think has a big influence uh, on the success of the model itself.
1: Yeah, I, I often talk about that as well. The The American weather system, at least on the federal em- enterprise side, is very different in terms of its organization uh you take uh the national weather service budget which is about a 1 billion dollars uh and i think you made an interesting point in the book about the satellite part of the noaa uh, enterprise being you know maybe 10 or so times that but the weather dollars in the united states actually are leveraged in many different places we uh, satellites the new doppler and and dual polarization uh, radar systems New models, new computers, et cetera. So, the very different budget model. Whereas, I think from your writing, you talk about how the European Center and even UMETSAT and others have a very streamlined, very focused uh, way of operating. And they can really allocate a lot of their budget and dollars to big, and fast computers, which is a key to these data assimilations and things that make the European model so good. I mean, it, was that insight in your research or in your writing of the book that um, really kind of was an aha moment for you?
0: It was. I mean, I, I, it's funny. I had written about the um, NOAA's uh, satellite system um, about, about 10 years ago. And even in that experience, I learned how complex it is, not just technically, but also bureaucratically. You know, we, we kind of, you know, we live with that as a sort of fact of, of you know, the U.S. government. You know, it's a, it's a sprawling organization. You know, we talk a lot about how the National Weather Service and how, the, how, how NESIS all have to, they have to, you know, serve many masters, how their, you know, budgets can change, you know, with different congressional administrations, how, you know, they need to run many different models, you know, local forecasting. You know, it's, it's, it's a big country with a lot of different responsibilities. And I, I sort of understand all that. But again, you know, when we talk about the improvement in the global system, uh, you know, it, it really was a, a sort of it, it wasn't a ha moment to, to realize that, you know, if we're talking about you know, medium range and long range forecasts, we are talking about a global observations and global models. And the European satellites and the European weather model is as useful and as relevant to us uh, in the United States to say nothing of the rest of the world uh, as the American systems. Um, so to sort of describe, you know, where, you know, where, you know, what's going on behind the app, describe where the forecast comes from. I thought that the it was a much clearer uh, way to, to sort of to, to tell the story, and equally equally relevant and equally legitimate as a source of our forecast, um, as the American system, uh, which 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 is you know for, for different reasons, understandable reasons, but is is, uh, is undeniably uh, you know complex and occasionally convoluted.
1: Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm talking with Andrew Bloom. He's the author of the new book, The Weather Machine. Let me give you a couple of the reviews or statements on the book so far. This is from The New Yorker. Andrew Bloom's new book, The Weather Machine, asks us to pause and marvel at the globe spanning networks of collaboration required to turn the weather from something we experience to something we can predict. And The Economist writes this about the book a vivid account of the history and evolution of the modern daily forecast. Bloom is a sharp analyst and an engaging guide adept at translating difficult concepts of meteorology and computer science for the uninitiated. I think those, having read the book, I think those are accurate statements. And I want to sort of circle back now because we dove into the discussion about the European model and GFS, but I want to take it back to sort of the humble beginnings of this process. You go back and talk about the Norwegian school, the role of the importance of the telegraph in modern weather forecasting and most importantly this collection of observations i mean from sort of one observation at one local point all the way to this global distribution of observations satellite data et cetera. talk about the role of observations and how it evolved to be so important yeah it was
0: it's such a fascinating question to look at for me Um, it was from the real thing that I recognized again, in looking at the infrastructure of the weather rather than the science of the weather. I think that was the kind of lens that I brought to it that, that's made me help me to see different things was that you can't know what the weather is going to be in one place at many times, you know, most likely, you know, most helpfully times in the future, unless you know what the weather is in many places at one time, you know, you need to be able to draw that, that, that synoptic map. Uh, and, um, you know, that, that wasn't possible until you had telecommunications, until you had the telegraph to be able to have a sort of simultaneous picture from all over the place. And even once the telegraph came in, uh, it was not, you know, it was, it was no easy thing to develop a system of exchanging those observations. You know, it wasn't just, you know, that didn't happen automatically, you know, there wasn't, was no internet or e- e- even when there was an internet still is a sort of careful system to be, uh, to be kind of refined and, uh, and, and improved. So you have um, telegraph operators at first, um, and then weather stations, um, weather observation points— um, you know, carefully organized by their national weather services, uh, in, to exchange observations internationally. We kind of, you know, we 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 know this if you're if you're if you're a weather person, um, but it's just a reminder that these systems were sort of made by hand. They were, you know, the the way you make, well, the time you make the observations, the way you code the observations, you know, how they're sent over the telegraph line or sent over later telecommunication uh, telex systems. You know, before we had the internet data systems, all of that has 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 had to be. Uh, you know, carefully constructed and put together and with agreements in place um, for the way in which we share that data and pull that data together. And again, you know, this recognition that, you know, yes, the, the weather is local and yes, particularly for shorter term forecasts, it's all about, you know, understanding what's happening in the atmosphere nearby to us. Uh, for smaller countries, uh, especially in Europe and other places in the world, or for longer term forecasts, you need to be able to put all the pieces together at a global scale and that's exactly the system that the World Meteorological Organization has um, has sort of uh, has coordinated um, over the last, you know, call it, call it 150 years or, or more actively over the last sort of 40 years with the, the system we have today.
1: Yeah, I think one thing that comes clear, and I, I knew this as someone in the field, but, you know, meteorology in this weather machine, if you will, is relatively young science compared to some of the more established sciences out there. And the other thing that I – it just came to mind as I was reading the book because I experienced this when I'm talking to people – people in you know understand the weather they experience it and i think they kind of in in their mind intuitively have an idea when a weather forecast is good or bad but i think sometimes their notion of a bad forecast is based on the fact that they may not necessarily understand that you know a global model like the GFS and European model is not necessarily going to resolve a thunderstorm that popped up in your backyard because there's something called spatial resolution and there are limits and so these the 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 value of highly dense frequent observations in weather forecasting and for the models for different scales is important uh, something that you alluded to in the book but i wanted to go a little bit further in the conversation is we do have these global scale models but you also mentioned that We have regional models. For example, in the United States, we have the – you mentioned the wharf model, the hurricane wharf. We have the HRRR model. These models get down at scales that give you weather on the scale of zero to 12 hours or zero to two days. Talk about how those differ from the global models.
0: Uh, It's a great question. I think the – you know, for me, uh, the one of the sort of the big recognitions was to see how the system is nested, uh, to recognize that the regional models are are you, you, you know use the global models for their edges. you know think they, they kind of have to. Um, and then to recognize um, the way uh, that the um, uh, to recognize the way that you know that we that we use them differently and the the, the different forecasting engines sort of ingest them. Uh, you know I, I'm amazed by the work that they do, uh, Peter Neely at the at the Weather Company. Um, you know, with their their forecasting engine that drives so many of the apps that you know, weather underground, the Weather Channel, you know, Facebook's weather, Google's weather, the way in which they have kind of developed a system that that does seamlessly sort of hand off from the inputs of the global models to the inputs of the regional models to to, to show us when the thunderstorms are forming. And I know that the you know human meteorologists, broadcast meteorologists, and and folks at the National Weather Service will kind of do that do that on their own, uh, you know, and and that's they put that together in their in their daily analyses. But it's really interesting to me the way that we draw on all the different tools uh, in order to, to kind of, again, not just have this academic question of what's the weather going to be, um, but what's the weather going to be with enough uh, confidence at what time scale for us to make decisions based on it. And I, I, I come back to that so that I don't get bogged down in this sort of technical question of, okay, is it, a, is it a perfect simulation of the atmosphere? But to really bring it back to, to what it means to us as, as consumers of weather forecasts.
1: We're talking with Andrew Bloom, the author of The Weather Machine on The Weather Geeks podcast. In your research and writing the book, did you ever get the sense that the human meteorologist or the human forecaster is obsolete?
0: it's a it's a it's a it's an interesting question i I'll, I'll i'll tell you how how i evolved with my thinking with this when um whenever you do something like this you you have a bit of stockholm syndrome you kind of you see sort of you fall in love with your captors and uh you know my my earliest captors were the weather modelers and i really like i thought you know this was you know this was the cats meow you know it was all about the incredible success of the weather model and it took me a while to remember um, and to come around to this question, and of course, I was reminded of it by some 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 really interesting thinkers. I'm thinking of uh, like Tim Palmer at the European Center, uh, Eve Grunfest uh, here in the U.S. was really helpful in sort of clarifying my thinking about this. To recognize that you know it can't it, it it's it's got to be about impacts as well, uh, and that's something that we absolutely need humans for. And I also talked to some 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 great uh, TV meteorologists, people like Ryan Hanrahan in 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 Hartford, Connecticut, um, who really said to me, you know, I, I know that the model is going to do a great job, a better job than I can, at saying, you know, if the temperature high temperature is going to be you know seventy three or seventy six, you know, the day after tomorrow. But I also know uh, that I have a huge job to do to help my viewers understand. Uh, What the impacts are going to be, you know, what, you know, sleet is going to mean something different at at five o'clock on a Tuesday than at, at, you know, than at 3 a.m. on a Sunday. Uh, And so I, you know, I sort of I have to admit, you know, if I started out saying, oh, my God, these models are amazing, you know, the humans are obsolete. What I've really come around to recognizing is that the better the forecast gets the more we need the human meteorologist to help us understand what it means for us. And it's been very reassuring to see uh, with the Weather Ready Nation and, and um, talking to, to Dr. Louis Cellini at the National Weather Service to, to recognize how the entire enterprise is shifting towards uh, these questions of impacts, um, given that our the, the, the capabilities of, call it the technical forecast, is so much better. And I recognize as well, these are kind of my own categories, but um, hopefully that's I can sort of bring some into insight to it as an outsider.
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting you talk about impacts and the skill of the model. Uh, we're in late July now as we're taping this podcast. In the last couple of weeks, we were watching hur- what became Hurricane uh, Barry. And one of the things, there was an interesting dialogue about this because the European model and eventually the the American model as well sniffed out that there was going to be this swirl in the atmosphere called the mesoscale convective vortex that was going to meander off the uh, United States mainland into the Gulf of Mexico and seed what became Hurricane Barry. And so everyone was sort of talking about how awesome it was that the models have come to a point where they could resolve that. But there was something interesting, though. Many of the local forecasters down in the Louisiana and the Gulf of Mexico region said, yeah, let's not toot our horns on these models too fast, because though they saw that something was going to form, they kind of missed to some degree on the precipitation forecast. So there was sort of this Jekyll and Hyde moment with the models. What? what how do you In sort of Think about that when we had this on the one hand, the model saw eight days out or whatever that this thing was going to form, but then you had people on the ground saying, Well, wait a minute, you told me this was going to be a 30 inch or 20 inch rain event, but it didn't turn out to be the case.
0: Yeah, you know, I think that we're still in a moment of transition, or I should say, meteorologists are still in a moment of transition of how much in their communication with the public they point at the models. How much they communicate the confidence that the models are presenting, you know, the the range of ensemble possibilities for in for a given scenario and you know I know there's some thinking that you know the models should just be hidden and the meteorologist should just say you know here's 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 what I you know here, here's with my variety of tools here's what I think is going to happen or there's the opposite there's the folks saying you know what you know what you know just just tell me what the models say or I'm going to look at the models myself or look at the apps myself but I think we are at a bit of a moment of transition and and Barry was 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 exactly one of these things where you know the the there was a rain, you know, the, the the models presented a, a range of possibility and you're talking about different uh, you know, different precipitation rates in different parts of the region you're talking about very localized uh, heavy rain. I mean, I was amazed. You know, I one, there was a moment where um, the National Weather Service in Shreveport said the uh, the latest model run has us moving. I think it was to the to the west. Uh, a couple of parishes. You know, so you know that's that's indicative of the kind of the the uh, the the differences we're talking about a few days out, um, but also indicative of the fact that this is all about you know how it hits the ground. This is all about you know where you know how we think about the places we live in human terms. In Louisiana, that means parishes, and so I, I think it for me it was indicative of a moment of of uh, of tra- the tra- moment of transition that we're in between the perfect models that we don't have yet. Uh, and the real need uh, to to sort of interpret and communicate um, the, the moments where they might have present less confidence for these four kids. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car.
1: And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Andrew Bloom, an American author and journalist who just wrote an amazing book called The Weather Machine. And I want to follow up on your last statement there before the last break, because you were talking about sort of confidence and uncertainty. And this is one of the things we struggle with as meteorologists and in the meteorology community. The word uncertainty and the notion that there will never be a perfect model. I think you make this point in the book that there, to some degree, a model forecast is always inherently wrong. It's just a matter of how wrong or or right it can be for useful information. But one of the things that I think you know and you Mm -hmm. convey this is that there's uncertainty in our weather forecast. I I think it's inherently why people misunderstand what a 40 percent chance of rain means, or I think it's why they misunderstand the cone of uncertainty with a hurricane. And if they have their certain interpretations of both of those concepts, they'll say that a forecast was wrong, but it wasn't. How do you see the world of weather forecasting and messaging with uncertainty wrapped in there?
0: I I think that one of the key things we haven't done yet uh, is revealed the extent that the rhythm of the model runs changes the forecast that's presented to the public.
1: Um, what do you mean by I, ri- what do you mean by rhythm?
0: Well, you know, I'll think uh, there's an example that really stands out for me was one. I live in New York City and uh, there was a storm this winter where the, the schools were closed um, for this winter. You know, snow was coming or snow was supposed to be coming. Uh, and um, our mayor uh, closed, you know, announced the closure. It was about six o'clock, 6 p.m. the evening before. And I and I, and I knew from, uh, you know, from from you know, following a lot, a lot of meteorologists on Twitter, I knew that there was, you know, that the latest model runs had shifted things a little bit, that shifted had shifted the storm north, that it was most likely that we were going to be getting less snow than had been forecast uh, 12 hours or six hours before. And it was amazing to me that that wasn't part of the decision-making, that there wasn't the sort of recognition that, we you know, we'll have a different, you know, we'll, we'll have meaningfully more useful data in you know half an hour from now, and we should postpone our decision until that was the case. And this is what I talk about with the kind of lag between. You know, I kind of imagine the the models and the the, the public as sort of two gears, and the meteorologists as a kind of you know third gear in the middle. And I still feel as if that, you know, there's the, – especially with the year-by-year improvements in the capabilities of the models, we're, we're, uh, we're not – our gears aren't always meshing right between what the public is hearing and what meteorologists are saying and the way the, the model is in, in informing the forecast. And I, I feel like uh, it's changing quickly, you know, and it's diff- – I you know, recognize it's a difficult task with, it, with, you know, with each storm, with each situation. But I do feel if we focus on what decisions we're going to make based on the forecast – Uh, then there is an opportunity to be clear about when new data is coming in, in the form of these incredibly helpful individual model
1: runs. Yeah, that's a, that's an excellent point, actually. One thing that I did want to ask you, since I did have you on the podcast today, because as I read the book, I was thinking in my own mind about the enterprise, this machine. I mean I think machine if you read the book I think you're going to see that machine to me at least for me as a reader it took on many different meanings as I as I read the book about the weather machine. I mean there's the weather machine, the computer that runs the model obviously, but then there's this larger machine of observations and assimilation and forecast, but then there's this machine called the weather enterprise and you have the federal sector, you have the private sector, you have the academic sector, and you featured all of these. I mean, for example, in the United States, you've got the the NOAA and the National Weather Service, but you also have NCAR, which is the National Center for Atmospheric Research and the affiliated universities. And then you have the private sector, the weather companies and IBMs and weather channels of the world. What was your takeaway in terms of the public-private partnership in the weather enterprise? And I guess I would even be more specific than that. How would privatization of weather data and systems impact this vast network?
0: Yeah. Um, You know, I I really came to admire uh, the system, for example, that the weather company has built uh, because I I use it every day. You know, I use it in the Weather Underground app, for example, um, and admire the way in which it pulls in data from all over the world. But when you talk about the shift to uh, private weather models and to private weather observations, particularly um, weather, private weather satellites, uh, because I learned about the necessity of international exchange with this weather data, just as an example, the recognition that for the polar orbiting satellites, which are so crucial to the weather models, you know, providing you 90 know, percent of the assimilated data, you know, they're coordinated to the extent that the European satellites overfly in the morning a different, certain longitude, and the the American satellites overfly in the afternoon the sort of same longitude. They're coordinated even in their timing of that. So I, I began to get very concerned about the possibility that if you do have private data uh, with private weather observations or with, or with private models, that we won't share it in the way that we have for 150 years. And even more dramatically, uh, that you could end up with a sort of, uh, a sort of more, you know, sort of you know fragmentation, where uh, somebody stops sharing, a uh, country stops sharing uh, because they're buying private data and their source says no, you can't share it, and then everybody else stops sharing all at once. And I, I don't think we're we're there yet, uh, but I kind of see the writing on the wall because, uh, you know, with in an era of new weather extremes and in an era of better weather forecasts. Uh, the forecast is 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 valuable. is more valuable than it's ever been. And so, if before you know there wasn't, you know, we we all agreed that no no one except a government was going to really stand up of you know spend tens of millions of dollars or not more to stand up a weather weather you know their own weather model. I think that financial equation has changed, and uh, and I'm also seeing um the, you know the, from the Trump administration um a real encouragement. Uh, Of of these of these new kinds of of these new private systems and a a, a real emphasis on making sure that they are profitable. That's that's you know that's and and continuing to to bring them in, and I'd see a great risk there uh, that the system of international exchange that we've built up and has been incredibly successful for meteorology over 150 years could fall apart. And you know I think we forget, uh, particularly in the United States, we forget how much we rely on global data. Uh, And I think um, I think that's risky.
1: Yeah, I've I've often argued as well that weather doesn't stop at the border, <laughs> and so we really need that cooperation. I think even one point I often make about the European model is good as it is, and I think you outlayed in your book the reasons it is so good, but. It- the European model becomes ordinary real fast if you take away many of the uh, data sets coming from other countries' satellites. So it's an important um, sort of network and I think that's right. I mean, there's this real debate out there about whether weather forecasts are a public good, like public safety associated with firefighting and, and 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 safety that is provided by the local police force. So I think this is going to be a conversation that will be continued. We had Neil Jacobs on, who's the acting director of NOAA. We had him on a previous Episode of Weather Geeks, and he talked about that there are areas where cooperation is needed, and even in models, he's talking about this new system called EPIC, in which um, entities outside of NOAA can actually help uh, tweak and, and improve the model. So, this is an interesting time. But the good news, I will say, as someone that has been in the enterprise a while, is there there is a lot more sort of cooperative conversation. There there used to be a bit more of an adversarial take on many of these things. Now, of course, there's still competition. I want to ask you if d- during the writing of this book um was there anything that truly shocked you maybe in a good way or a bad way
0: I I think it it really came back to the speed of improvement, uh, you know, I just, I, you know, I, I wonder, I, you know, I, when I first sort of poking started poking around with with this with this question, of the weather models, which 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 was with with Hurricane Sandy, you know, just, a, you know, the, the moment where a lot of us who aren't meteorologists kind of came face to face with this, you know, this battle between the euro and the GFS. Uh, you know, that was that was uh, Sandy was seven years ago now. Uh, and even in that time period, the forecast has gotten measurably better. And so to recognize, you know, or even put it in sort of iPhone timescale, you know, when the iPhone came out, you know, the forecast was a, a, you could call it a day worse. You know, the five-day forecast was a four-day forecast. That's just an incredible rate of improvement. Or the European Center is now talking about a 14-day forecast for extreme events by 2025. So I think that, you know, the really shocking thing is that you can't, you know, if you stop for a second, the forecast gets better. And uh, that's, you know, that's sort of these you know, statistical aggregate, you know, again, it doesn't mean we're meaningfully making decisions different, you know, day by day, you know, or even this week, uh, you know, the, with this, the, you know, we're in the middle of a July heat wave. And it was Monday afternoon, um, that everyone sort of said, wow, there's going to be crazy heat on Saturday. Um, and that's just, we just sort of take that as it is. So I, again, the surprise for me was, um, has been the not just the success of the forecast, but the way this the rate at which it's improving. And there's so many things pointing to an even greater rate for the future. So it's an exciting time.
1: Yeah, it really is an exciting time. Now, one one thing that is an exciting evolution of the weather machine, if you will, and it will continue to evolve, is how we disseminate the information. And you, you've mentioned the Weather Channel or the Weather Underground app. Uh, what is your overall Perspective on weather apps, good or bad? Because I see a lot of people misinterpret them out there. The people that just feel like the weather app is sort of all be uh, end all be all, and we don't even need the weather machine or enterprise anymore. But unbeknownst to them, it's a part of the weather enterprise, and much of what they're seeing on their little icons on their phone is coming from a vast system of meteorologists, models, and observations.
0: Yeah, so it's interesting. You know, once I learned that, as an example, the weather companies forecasting engine is driving so many different systems. It's so funny to me to see in the morning, you know, open up Facebook and it to say we had to have, you know, a half a sentence about what the weather's going to be that day and then to open up the Weather Underground app that's showing me, you know, changing changing percentages, changing wind speed, you know, hour by hour. Uh, there's just so much more detail coming out of the same out of the same system it, and it's just presented differently so when i you know when i am i'm always amazed you know that that how much you know the app at least some apps will just whittle it down to a single icon and there'll be a moment where the icon you know flips over for whatever the percentage is you know flips over from a cloud to a rain you know and and i i think there's just so much detail lost but that said, you know, giving you know, not everybody wants to drill down into it. Uh, I think there is still some kind of information design to be done to keep it simple uh, for a general public who's not going to sort of geek out over what the you know what you know how how the wind direction is changing and how the percentages are changing hour by hour, but also not uh, sort of steer people in the wrong direction by saying it's going to be a rainy day but, and here's the catch, the forecast has gotten so good that it's going to be a beautiful day until 4.30 when, you know, it's going to pour, which is the, the case is the day I speak today. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a strange thing to put in a half sentence. Um, it's just, we're, we're kind of, again, I think at this moment of transition between what the technical system is providing with us with and what we're willing to hear uh, about it and what what confidence we have in that Enough to place a bet, you know. If you know, if you're if you're a human, you're gonna you're gonna hedge and say it's probably you know it's gonna rain you know this afternoon. You're not gonna say it's gonna rain at four thirty, but in fact, uh, we're getting pretty close to that.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I think as uh, you've mentioned a lot of the big players, but I, there was a recent article in Forbes that I, I can't remember the exact title of the article, but uh, in that article, the, the the writer was talking about this sort of proliferation of new companies that are coming along, uh, companies like Climacell and others that are using all kinds of unique ways to improve that vast network of observations uh, using cell phone towers and all kinds of other indirect information from traffic signals and whatnot to really provide a robust and dense network. So I, I, this is an exciting time for weather forecasting. Uh, I, as I mentioned on a previous podcast, I think Mike Smith wrote an article in the Washington Post saying that there hasn't been a, a an airplane crash from wind shear in over 25 years. I think his point is that's just indicative in, in in many ways, of just how how good we've gotten. And I think the Sandy and eight days out from the European model was another example. So I think people take that for granted a little bit. And so then their expectations for what we actually can do uh, maybe get a bit inflated. But overall, I think the enterprise has really advanced. In this last minute or so, Andrew, I'm going to give you the last word. Uh, What is your main takeaway or something that you see forthcoming after having written The Weather Machine?
0: Uh, I think I want to come back to that necessity of international international cooperation and collaboration. You know, we, particularly in the United States, you know, we've got such a big weather service. We've got such a big country. We've got so much private capability. Uh, we've got a lot of unique weather. Um, and, uh, it, you know, I, I think that we just often forget uh, how much we rely on this global system. And there's just so much opportunity there uh, to keep improving, particularly these sort of longer-range longer forecasts, medium-range forecasts, um, by leveraging that as much as possible. And what I worry is that we, um, you know, we, we, we will we'll get too caught up um, in the sort of local issues, especially around the weather enterprise and privatization, uh, and forget the sort of quiet work that has been done for 150 years on the part of meteorologists to exchange data to get us to this incredible point we're at today.
1: Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with that. Um, the, the weather re- re- requires cooperation at all levels. And so I think you echo that point well. Where can people find you on social media?
0: Uh, social media on um, uh, Twitter a lot is uh, AJBLUM. Um, AJ Blum, and um, you know uh, I, the, the 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 book. I'm, I just am thrilled you liked it. I you know I was always worried that I uh, you know the me the, the professionals would say no no no. I have no idea what you're talking about in that case. So I just am thrilled that you uh, that you that 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 you took it in, uh, and that's and it's called the Weather Machine. It's available lots of places.
1: Okay, great. I, I really recommend this book, particularly if you want a, a layperson's understanding of how we make forecasts and how it gets from uh, uh, some data points and numbers all the way to usable information on your TV or app. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm glad to hear you're a listener of the podcast as well. I, I'm, of course, I'm happy to hear that. Of course. Yeah, and, no, I
0: pre- appreciate all the communication work you do. I,
1: oh, no, no problem. And again, thank you all for listening to the Weather Geeks podcast and continue to join us on the podcast, uh, subscribe out there at your favorite outlet, and uh, uh, follow us on social media as well at Weather Geeks. Thank you again, Andrew. Thank you. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and this has been the Weather Geeks podcast. One, two